What if you could know the future? Specifically, what if you could know the future about your health and what diseases you might get and how you might eventually die? Would you want to know, even if you couldn't change it? And if you could change it for yourself or for your children, would you? Or would that be changing who you are and how you were created? These are just some of the questions that have driven the extraordinary career of my guest today, whose life and work has been lived at the intersection of ethics, spirituality, and medicine. Welcome to this week's All Together, the podcast dedicated to exploring ethics, religion, and spiritual practice in daily life. My name is Paul Rauschenbusch, and I'm the executive editor of Global Spirituality and Religion at the Huffington Post and the host of All Together. You can download All Together on iTunes or Stitcher. Joining me in the studio is Dr. Robert Klitzman, professor of clinical psychiatry at Columbia University where he is also the director of the Masters of Bioethics program. He is the author of six books, including The Trembling Mountain, The Ethics Police, When Doctors Become Patients, and Am I My Genes? Dr. Robert Klitzman, thank you so much for joining me on All Together. Pleasure to be here. So let's start with A mission statement for Bob Klitzman, because you have had such an incredibly diverse career, but I do think that there is an internal coherence to it. How would you describe it? Uh, It's a great question. I've never been asked that before, and I expect no less from from you and from HuffPo. Uh, I see myself as trying to understand how people deal with moral issues in their lives and larger I'll say metaphysical questions that we all face. So uh, having trained as a physician and specializing in psychiatry, uh, I found that patients and other healthcare providers find themselves, find ourselves, we find ourselves wrestling with these issues every day of what is life, what is death, when do we pull the plug on someone, uh, what does it mean to be oneself or to have depression or manic depression, Uh, What does it mean to uh, be unable to control one's own mind, as often is the case with psychiatric patients? Uh, And with new technologies such as genetics and our ability now to design babies, literally, uh, and we've begun to do this and are on the cusp of doing it more and more, there are major questions about should we do this? When should we do this? And essentially, almost, what does it mean to be human? Yes, exactly. And how, how do we decide what is human and what is such innovation that it becomes no longer human? Or is that something that's not possible? Well, these are all questions. Ultimately, yeah. the question of is it is it is some a, a, a being we produce no longer human raises the question of what is human. Right. Uh, and back to that. Back yeah. to that. Yeah. And so ultimately, these are the ultimate questions. And I was grateful to have had some wonderful mentors in my life uh, who've uh, supported me and and helped me as I began to think about some of these issues. But again and again, I found that whether I was looking at people wrestling with HIV infection before there was treatment in the early days of the epidemic when they questioned, you know, why am I here? Why do I have this? 
what am I to do? What is the meaning of my life? Uh, to people dealing with uh, genetic illnesses, as I wrote in my book, Am I My Genes? To uh, the book I did, uh, When Doctors Become Patients, uh, where a series of physicians I interviewed also face these questions of uh, having had power and knowledge and having been in control to now lose all that when one is a patient with a serious illness raises a whole set of very deep questions that people wrestle with. And I should say the method I use is one that's informed by psychiatry, but also anthropology and sociology. I was fortunate after I graduated college to spend a year living in a Stone Age tribe in New Guinea studying uh, kuru, which is a disease that is spread by cannibalism, but it's the same as mad cow disease. And this is before few years before mad cow disease was actually identified. And so this still remains the largest collection of humans who've died of what we think of as mad cow disease, actually Kreisfeld-Jakob disease. Uh, and yet the people believed the disease was caused by sorcery and could be cured by sorcery. And I would say uh, they, would th they thought that a sorcerer would take your food scraps or something that belonged to you and wrap it around a stone and bury it and cast a spell on it. And they'd dig up stones and say, see this stone? And they'd point to a big six-inch round stone and say, this is the stone that killed my mother. And I'd say, no, kuru is caused by a very little thing like an insect. And they'd say, well, show it to us. I said, well, it's too small to see. And they'd say, well, what does it look like? And I'd say, well, we don't know. And they'd say, well, have you seen it? And I'd say, no, because it hadn't been identified. And they said, well, that's just magic. Uh, you know, it's a stone that killed my mother, and they believed they could cure the disease. And so they believed uh, – uh, I met someone who claimed to cure the disease, and I said, who would you cure? And he pointed to all these people who looked fine to me. And I said, what's the treatment? He said, well, for one week you can't uh, drink water or eat salt or touch a member of the opposite sex, and I cast a spell on you and give you some herbs. So I said, well, is there anyone you haven't treat, cured? And he said, pointed to one guy who's the one guy I thought had the disease. And I said, well, why didn't he get better? And he said, very simple, he didn't follow the treatment. So I realized, and the treatment I thought was no treatment at all. And yet in psychiatry and in medicine, often we see patients who don't do well and we say, well, they didn't follow the treatment. So we don't think about what we're doing. We don't examine ourselves. We assume that we have the answer, that we have the knowledge, that science is giving us the answer. And unfortunately, it doesn't always. And we fall back to basic human questions. And I think more and more, I see that these are the ultimate questions that uh, we need to try to wrestle with of, of, of each of us in our own way. Why do these things happen? There's still a lot of magic and uh, mysticism and mythology that goes on in medicine. Uh, and I think we need to understand that we'll all be better off. Moving from that, what does it mean to be human in relationship to kind of what we were born with uh, and how in some ways we were created in both beautifully and also flawed ways. And I'm curious, um, how does the conversation about genes flow into the conversation about what it means to be truly human? Uh, and with that, um, what does it mean to want to know ourselves and also not know ourselves? Right. Well, those are all great questions uh, and tapping into many different issues. Uh, so the book I wrote is I entitled, Am I My Genes? with a question mark. Uh, and that was a question that one of the people I interviewed for the book said to me. I interviewed a group of, of people who were at risk of different genetic 
mutations, some of whom had decided to get tested, some whom decided not to get tested, some who found them they had a mutation, some found they didn't have a mutation. Did you see how they understood all this and made these decisions? And one woman I interviewed said, you know, I wonder sometimes, am I my genes? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was at first going to call the book The Genetic Self. At one point, that was a working title. And I realized that's not the right title because it's not about the genetic self. It's more the question. And because this is the question that people wrestled with and how to make sense of that. And, of course, we know that for many conditions and for many psychiatric conditions, whether it's depression or uh, intelligence even, we know that these are 50% genetic and 50% other. And so the answer to the age-old question of is it nature or nurture, the answer is both. Uh, and how they're both is, are questions we don't know the answers to yet. Uh, in Hinduism, there is a belief that everyone has a certain number of arrows in their quiver. You are given a certain number of arrows. Where you shoot the arrows is up to you. But there's a limit on how many arrows you have or how many you have left at different points in your life. Uh, and I think that similarly is a useful and insightful way to think about the fact that there are certain limitations on us as human beings. We're not going to live to be 200. Uh, uh, there are certain diseases, in fact, we're more likely to get or not. Uh, but at the same time, we also have an element of control in a lot of that. Uh, and what I found in the book and doing the interviews is uh, that Genetic tests, in a way, serve as a kind of Rorschach. That, uh, so, for instance, one of the first women I interviewed for the book uh, had breast cancer and had the mutation for breast cancer. And she said to me, you know, I always knew I shouldn't have stayed in that crappy relationship all those years. I said, why is that? And she said, well, that's why I have breast cancer. I said, but you have the mutation. And she said, yeah, yeah, but what triggered it was the stress of that crappy relationship. And I always told myself I shouldn't have stayed in that relationship that long. That's why I have it. The next woman I interviewed said, you know, it's that horrible job and the fact that I was living on Long Island for those years and I always told myself this was wrong. That's why I have breast cancer. And I'd say, but you have the mutation. She'd say, yeah, yeah, but it was that horrible boss and I was stressed out all the time and that's when I got diagnosed. The next person I interviewed was an African-American woman from the South Bronx. And she said, you know, it's all the crap that they dump in the landfills in the Bronx. They would never dump in Manhattan where the rich people live, the rich white people. That's why breast cancer. And I realized all these people had a story of their lives, a sort of, a, a sort of organizing narrative that helped them make sense of their lives. And they took this genetic information and they looked at it through the lens of the story as a way to make sense of it. And all those stories may be right, by the way, because if you have the mutation for breast cancer, there's around a 50% chance you'll get it or not get it. So 50% is psychosocial and environmental stuff. So maybe those are right. But what's interesting to me is they didn't say it's the gene. Even though scientists and uh, a lot of journalists emphasize genetics and having a biological medical answer and we see headlines that say, you know, the, the fat gene, the gay gene, the IQ gene, the cancer gene, the alcohol gene. In fact, it's very complicated and uh, much more complicated than we thought and there are these other elements that that play out. And but isn't there going to be like at some point, like some sort of mapping in the sense that everyone will kind of have a sense, oh, this is what my life is going to be. I mean, I do think that that's the danger here is that there's going to be a, um, and 
kind of an entire picture of your life that you are given when you're born because of the genetic makeup that you have? Well, I, um, for good or bad, nature's more complicated than our ability to understand it. Uh, and uh, there was the movie Gattaca a few years ago uh, with Ethan Hawke, I believe, that uh, in the science fiction movie taking place in 100 years from now or whenever, when a child's born, it would read out you have a 60% of dying of heart disease and 80% of this, percent of that, et cetera. The um, problem is that genetics has proven to be much more complicated than anyone thought. And uh, the analogy I often think of is the fact that we can barely predict the weather 24 hours from now. Think how often the weather says, the weatherman says, uh, well, there's a 30% chance of rain or a 40% chance of rain. You'd think that by now they would know that whatever the weather in New York is going to be tomorrow is what the weather is in Philadelphia or wherever today. And yet if we can't even predict the weather, which is a much simpler system, uh, 24 hours from now without all – I mean sometimes they can, of course, but there's a lot of unpredictability. Think how hard it is to predict what's going to happen to you 60 years from now, 40 years from now, 80 years from now. So – uh, because there are a lot of these unpredictables and uncertainties, and I think it's, it, it, it highlights our hubris to a certain degree and uh, the fact that we often come to believe things and believe we have control when we don't. Hmm. Uh, and in, well, that's an interesting question. What does this have to say with free will? Does it involve – like what, what does it mean you know, to, to be able to – to make choices about our lives that are actual choices rather than well, seeming choices. Well, I think what I found in the and I've interviewed lots of patients and doctors over the years for these various books. Um, what I particularly in the genetics book is that people wanted to believe they had free will. So, so Huntington's disease, for instance, is a terrible disease. If you have the mutation, you will die of it if you don't die of something else. It, it's one of the very few mutations that we know is 100% lethal. Uh, if, you, if I have it and I have children, uh, each of my children has a 50% chance of dying from it. So Woody Guthrie, for instance, who wrote This Land is Your Land, had it, died of it. Arlo Guthrie, his son, has a 50% chance of having it. I understand from media reports, he's decided not to be tested. A lot of people decide not to be tested because who wants to have this, quote, death sentence hanging over them. But even there, when I interviewed a large group of people who were at risk of this, uh, and some had tested and found they had it, a number of people said, you know, yes, I know I will die of this, but when I die of it is up to me. And if I exercise and eat properly, I'm in control. Now, whether exercise and diet has any influence whatsoever on Huntington's disease, I don't know. My guess is probably there's been no literature to suggest that. Of course, exercise and diet are good in general. Uh, but the important thing there was that people want to believe they have control. And I it, it reminds me of AIDS. It reminds me of when people had, you know, were clearly had AIDS and there was no cure uh, right. in the 80s and 90s. Uh, and uh, But people would say, okay, this is what I'm going to do, how I'm going to beat this. Right. Uh, and it's a, I think it's about like living your life. <laughs> it's yes, really correct. about living your life, right. isn't it? And 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 saying this is this is my life to do. I have choices every day, every moment. I have choices. Yes, exactly right. And I think otherwise we'd be depressed if you thought my I'm stuck. Well, and people uh, do get depressed. And, and but... <laughs> people do get depressed. And and people who face genetic diseases have to go through a process of coming to realize, or of even 
dealing with diagnosis of cancer or whatever it is, mm-hmm. to realize, yes, I have cancer, I may die of this, but you know I have today. I can make the most of my life. So again, the notion, which is a very Zen-like notion too, should live in the moment, appreciate it. You could, We could all get hit by a bus tomorrow. We don't know. Uh, and uh, it's hard to maintain that, uh, unfortunately. But I think that's a key uh, uh, element of how to uh, think about these issues and how to deal with the fact that we often don't have control. Uh, but we need to believe we do, and I think we can. We certainly can control how we live today. Right. I I want to move into perhaps one of your most powerful books, which was when doctors become patients, because you yourself faced an incredibly traumatic and difficult experience of your sister who died on nine eleven, and had to all of a sudden be the one who was faced with this kind of crippling illness. I don't, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so my sister uh, worked at the World Trade Center, and, um, you know, at 8.45 in the morning, my mother calls up and says, did you hear that building was hit? That's where Karen works. And I said, oh, no, I'm sure she's fine. You know, you hear about some disaster, and, it, you know, it's usually not someone you know who's involved. Um uh, but then, unfortunately, sadly, it, uh, uh, she was there, and, and we never heard from her after she called her best friend at 8.30 in the morning, apparently, we now know, and then no one heard from her since. So it was a terrible time I, uh, for me, my family, for everyone, I think, living in New York, if not the country and the world. Um, but for us, the first few weeks, I we had to... Um, deal with the fact that she's gone. We had to, you know, go to, there were places saying, you know, well, here we have lists of people who are survivors come by and we would go by and look at the lists. And of course, my sister wasn't on it. And we had to organize a memorial service uh, and pack up her apartment, sell her apartment. Uh, We had no body at that point. We later got a small piece of a bone that we buried, which is another story very traumatic very difficult and my mother and, and Karen who died my sister was an identical twin uh, and so uh, and my mother was still is still alive and so for all of us uh, dealing uh, with that it was very very hard so I did all these things and then my body gave out after two weeks three weeks I just was in bed I'd been like you know people were calling and having to deal with all this stuff you know, reporting going down to reporter as a missing person with the FBI all these things we had to do and for about two, three weeks, I just – I felt I had the flu. I just was laying in bed. I couldn't get out of bed. I uh, The only place it felt comfortable was lying in bed. I didn't feel like reading or watching TV or listening to music. And uh, my friends would say, well, this is all grief. I said, no, 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 I'm, I, I'm, I have the flu. And they said, no, you're depressed because of grief. I said, no, 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 this is the flu. And I was a psychiatrist. I trained as a psychiatrist. And um, – uh, you know, I'd seen a lot of patients who complained of bodily problems, and we thought, well, they're not psychologically minded. And yet I realized how much depression – I finally realized it was grief and depression, etc. I realized how much that is a bodily phenomenon, uh, and yet we're not taught that. If anything, we look down at people who, quote, somaticize, uh, and yet uh, it, we now know, of course, that it, depression involves a whole host of neurochemicals, of uh, uh, hormones and other uh, chemicals in the body that affect the whole body, uh, appetite, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, 
But it made me realize how much I didn't know as a psychiatrist, how much I didn't know as a physician, how what had not been taught to me. And so I ended up interviewing a group of 75 doctors who had had serious illness about what they learned, what they unlearned. And one of the things that struck me most is how much spiritual issues and religious issues came up. Many things came up that I could talk about. Uh, but uh, that uh, particularly... Uh, uh, made an impression on me. So a lot of doctors would say to me, you know, um, you know, patients used to say to me for years, oh, doc, would you pray for me? And I'd say, yeah, yeah, whatever. And I'd poo-poo it, quote unquote. Then I became a patient and realized how important those issues were. And, uh, and, and then doctors varied. Some said, you know, I wish I could believe in something, but I, I just can't. And they were a little more depressed either because or as a result of that. Uh, and then, uh, then some uh, said, you know, I've, uh, you know, mix and match beliefs and I've kind of gotten more involved in that. Some people said, uh, to my surprise, some said, one doctor said, well, I I'm, I'm, don't believe in any of this stuff. He said, but I believe that if I treat my patients as well as I can and aim for the best science and give as much as I can, that is what I believe in. And to me, this was a very spiritual guy, even though he said he doesn't believe in anything, quote unquote. Another doctor uh, said, she was a member of the Hasidic community, and she said when she had cancer, she was in the hospital, and the Hasidic community came by, and she said, well, we want to pray for you. They said, told her, and she said, well, that's fine. Do whatever you want, but I don't believe any of this shit. Uh, so uh, th they said, that's fine. So they would come, and they'd pray, and they'd bring her food, and they'd uh, – and they said, well, we just have one thing we want to ask, which is that they said to her, which is when you leave here that you light Sabbath candles on the Sabbath. And she said, okay, but I don't believe any of this stuff. And she said, you know, and uh, since then, she said, every Sabbath I light candles, but I don't believe any of this stuff. Mm -hmm. So, again, it raised questions of what is spirituality, what is religion, how much is a cultural phenomenon, how we understand these in different ways. Actually, then, as I wrote about that, I, I looked up, well, how do we understand religiosity? So, I, I found a book called Measuring Religiosity. It's around 300 pages long, all different 200 scales of how to measure religiosity. I realized none of them would capture these exp the experience of these people. Mm. I think the reason for that, just as background, is I think in the 19th century, American medicine had to uh, – there was a lot of quackery and American medicine said we're now going to be scientific. And so American medicine had to distance itself from, quote, quackery or other things uh, and said we're just scientific and it divorced itself from the more humane side. And I think that is a mistake. I learned that in New Guinea, how much these issues, cultural issues are intermixed with how we understand illness, et cetera. Uh, yeah, that's so. I, I the other thing that occurred to me while you were talking was how roles are beneficial. It's good to have a role, but it also um, back to what it means to be human. Um, when you say, "Well, I'm a doctor," what does it mean for me to be a patient? And you know, this kind of very difficult. And what does it mean to go in to any kind of situation as a patient, um, which is in some ways can just feel like a passive sort of victimhood. I, I don't know. I just see it, it's the, the question of medicine and how we experience the being treated uh, right. is, I think, an interesting one uh, as far as, like, what does it mean to become, be fully human in the treatment of medicine and bring everything that we are, which can include spirituality as well as the lack of spirituality, but also – you know, my my history, my story about what happened, even if the doctor doesn't agree with me. I mean, it's, it's – it, 
We're, um, I just wonder like w- how much of our humanity we bring into the medical s- so we, moment. We, right. We bring in a lot, whether we're a doctor or a patient. And the problem is that a lot of modern medicine trying to be very scientific sees itself as just about what's your diagnosis, you know, your, um, your blood count, your red blood count is too low. That's you. You know, that's how we see you. Is the problem is you have a low blood count, or the problem is you have a high potassium level or low potassium level, whatever it is. But in fact, there's a whole human element that's there that unfortunately gets lost. And the problem is, is that uh, doctors may make assumptions about what the what the patient is experiencing that may not be correct because. As you say, we all have roles, and what roles do is they help organize our experience, but there are, as you say, costs. So uh, a lot of times the role gives us direction, and it says this is – we'll do A when we see B, uh, and we don't think about C, D, E, F, G. Uh, so uh, – and it, it channels us in a way, and uh, we uh, – the problem of is also is that I think that American medicine, the scientific basis of medicine, ignores a lot of the human encounter. And that's what I found in large part in this mm. book, When Doctors Become Patients, mm. in many, many ways. So similarly, um, a few of these doctors said, you know, when they were in the hospital, their doctor would come by and say to them in, as they lay in bed that doctor, their doctor would stand in the hall and say, everything okay, waving his hand. And they'd say, yeah, everything's fine. And the doctor would go on. And afterwards, these doctors would say to me, why did I say everything's fine? Everything's not fine. Here, I have cancer. This is wrong. I'm, but I, I, they would tell me, I realize that I'm trying to please my doctor. Mm. You know, if mm. I say everything's fine and we're good guys and he likes me and I like <laughs> him. And if I say this problem and that problem, he's going to drum his fingers and get impatient. <laughs> but these doctors said to me, you know, I then realized for the first time in my life after I've practiced medicine for 40 years that if I want – my doctor to please me, and I'm therefore not saying things to him or her, that my patients must similarly be trying to please me and are not telling me things. Mm. And again and again, that's the kind of thing I heard. So uh, a few doctors would also say, you know, my doctor would say, how you doing? I'd say, eh, not so great. And finally, it took six visits and six months for me to say, actually, doc, I think I'm depressed and I need treatment, antidepressants. And these docs would say, you know, if it took me as a physician, if I felt that much shame that it took me six months and six visits to tell my doctor that I'm depressed, could you imagine how hard it must be for my patient to tell me? Mm. And I've never realized this before. So again and again, uh, the role can be important, but a role, getting back to hubris, um, uh, gives us confidence, to, especially with medicine when we're dealing with blood and guts and death and dying and this way we have this role. We wear a white coat. We medicine's over. Disease is there. I'm here. Uh, good, bad organizes the world. But it's a, it, there are costs. Um, right. right. Can so I want to end with this question around what would you like for medicine to learn or to embrace about ethics and spirituality? Those are big questions. Those are great questions. Uh, I I think um, a few things. One, medicine now is being ruled a lot by private industry, whether it's drug companies, whether it's insurance companies. Uh, Luckily, I think we have the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, that's helping to bring a lot of care to people. But 
But there's a lot that's going on that's about people making a buck off of other people's illness and misery. And I think that's unfortunate. Um, so that's one thing. Uh, the other is, uh, I think, to realize how important spirituality, I'll call it spirituality, is, is to patients. And by that, I mean the human element of medicine. And that's terribly underappreciated, uh, uh, the fact that patients are dealing with ultimate meanings of life while the doctors are busy thinking about blood levels. And we know from studies that Patients who can talk to someone in the hospital about these issues are more satisfied with their care, even if they didn't want to talk about these issues beforehand. Uh, that it's not just the spiritual issue people get more out of spirituality. Everybody, whether interested in this stuff or not, if someone in the hospital, whoever it is, could be a chaplain, nurse, doctor, et cetera, talks to them about these issues, they're more satisfied. And I think that's an important lesson to us. Uh, and I think at some point... Uh, that, as I said, Western medicine had to uh, see itself as being very scientific and distance itself from the humane and the human. And I think that uh, the pendulum needs to swing back. I, a few years ago, I went to Greece and I went to Epidaurus, which is the largest intact Greek theater in the world. It was also uh, the home of one of the largest cults of Hippocrates and of healing. And so it turned out what I didn't know was that the theater was part of a hospital, it was part of a complex. And in this complex, within these walls, it was a theater, a temple, and the hospital. And I thought, what a wonderful combination that, of course, a hospital should also have a theater and a temple. Uh, we've divorced ourselves from that, and I think there's a cost to that. Uh, I'm all for scientific development and progress, but we need to realize that patients uh, and doctors are coming to this looking for larger questions. Uh, and a lot of people I interviewed with genetics, for instance, and and we're going to be seeing tsunamis of genetic information hitting us in the next few years. Soon we'll, I think all of us, when you go to the doctor, will have uh, the doctor have our whole genome in front of him or her. Uh, but a lot of people I interviewed said, you know, yes, I know I have this disease because I have Huntington's because I have the mutation. But why do I have the mutation? Why did God give me the mutation and not my sister? Or why did God give my sister the mutation and not me? You know, even Einstein famously said, God does not roll dice. And so the notion that, again, we're being controlled by our genes in some ways and what that means and how much control we have and who's, if, if, it's, if it's been predetermined, who predetermined it? What predetermined it? Why is that? What do you mean my life is predetermined? I mean, how do we struggle with these issues? These are age-old issues, and I think we need to understand that these are still here in an important way in our lives as we march ever forward in the 21st century. Dr. Robert Klitzman, thank you so much for joining me on All Together. My pleasure. Thank you for joining me on this week's All Together. Each of our lives are fragile, wondrous, and precious. May we value and care for ourselves and those around us as best as we can each day, knowing that we all carry a piece of the divine within us and at our core, are sacred. Until next time, be well. This segment of HuffPost Altogether was produced by Caitlin Boguki, sound engineered by Brad Shannon, and edited by Nick Offenberg. <laughs>